0: I mentioned a few episodes ago that 13 of the final 16 chapters in the book of Exodus deal with the topic of worship. That's a huge block of content in proportion to the book as a whole. Douglas Stewart draws out the obvious implication. He says, worship is the first most basic response of a true believer to the true God, Close quote. And so while it may seem strange to us that so much word count is devoted in Exodus to the instructions regarding the tabernacle and its various furnishings and implements, the principle here is that worship actually should command a fairly large percentage of our time, talent, and treasure. Worship is a big rock, to borrow some terminology from Stephen Covey, Worship isn't just something that we jam into any remaining cracks and crevices in our lives. Worship goes in first. As Christians, we would want to consider that part of the symbolism behind our practice of gathering on the first day of the week. We would want to consider this as part of the rationale behind our practice of giving generously, not of whatever is left over at the end of the month, but giving to God our first and our best. Worship is a big rock for all true believers. It is part of how we communicate that God is first and center in our lives, and it is part of how we curb our natural inclination toward selfishness, idolatry, and isolationism. Worship turns us outward and upward, and in doing so, assists us in becoming the people we were created and saved to be. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze." You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made." You will recall that God has been describing the construction of these various items from the inside out, that is, in a descending order of holiness. The account began with the most important item in the most holy place. The first set of instructions had to do with the Ark of the Covenant. That is the only item inside the Holy of Holies. After that, we had the instructions regarding the two most important items in the holy place, the table and the lampstand. Following that, we had instructions for the curtains and the frame for the structure itself. Now, here in chapter 27, we have moved outside into the outer court. And once again, God begins with instructions concerning the most important item in the outer court. And that would be, of course, the bronze altar. And you would likely have already noticed that as we move from the inside out, so also we are moving from precious to less precious materials. The ark was overlaid in gold, but the altar in the outer court is overlaid in bronze. Remember, as J. Alec Montier told us in chapter 25, the tabernacle could make a strong bid to be the greatest of all biblical visual aids, closed quote. So everything means something. The tabernacle was a physical structure, but it was also a living and breathing communication tool. Now, there are three names for this altar described at the beginning of chapter 27. It is called the altar of burnt offering, the altar of bronze, and the outer altar. Each of those names relates to its function and serves to distinguish it from the altar of incense that was located inside the holy place. So it is called the altar of burnt offering because that was the main offering that was offered on it. It was offered twice daily, and so it is particularly associated with that particular rite. It is also called the altar of bronze to distinguish it from the altar of incense, which was made of gold or overlaid with gold. It is called the outer altar because it was in the outer court, whereas the altar of incense was in the holy place. As for why the altar of incense is not described until chapter 30, uh, that is a bit of an oddity and a mystery. I mentioned that the general pattern in Exodus is to describe these items from the inside out and in descending order of holiness. The altar of incense, however, breaks that pattern. It is described in chapter 30, a chapter we haven't come to yet, a chapter that many scholars consider a sort of appendix to the main instructions. Nahum Sarna comments on this apparent oddity. He says, it is surprising that the instruction to build an altar for the ritual burning of incense in the tabernacle is not included in the main pericope. A possible answer is that although incense is foretokened in 25.6, it plays no role in the installation ceremonies of the priesthood. Hence, notice of its use is deferred, until those directives are completed, closed quote. That may well be it. For now, we simply notice that the altar of bronze was the most important thing in the outer court. It was where the ritual sacrifices were grilled. The altar itself was made of wood and overlaid with bronze. It was square in shape, about seven and a half feet wide and deep, and then about four and a half feet high. For those more comfortable in metric, that's about 2.3 meters square and 1.35 meters high. The altar was hollow, meaning that below the bronze grating, there was an empty space that was likely filled with earth and rocks, as per the instructions in Exodus 20, verse 24. The altar, like everything else in the tabernacle, had to be portable. So when it was moved, the earth and stones would be removed and the structure would be carried by means of the poles that were inserted through rings attached at the sides. At the four corners of the altar, there were bronze horns. These had practical and symbolic purposes. Practically, they were used to help tie down the offerings, as per Psalm 118, verse 27. And they were also the place where a fugitive might come to seek asylum, as per 1 Kings 1, 50-53. The horns of the altar were also regularly daubed with the blood from the sacrificial animal as a way of returning the blood to God, the author and giver of life. The text also describes various implements associated with the altar. Most of those are fairly self-explanatory. The pots were used to collect and remove ashes. The shovels were used to scrape up the ashes and deposit them into the pots. The basins were used to collect the blood The forks were used to turn the meat and the fire pans were used to scoop up the coals and embers. We jump back into the text at verse nine. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. It's 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver, and likewise for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars 20, and their bases 20 of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars, and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. I mentioned in the last episode that the design of the tabernacle compound was roughly analogous to the design of a typical nomad's homestead. A typical nomad's homestead would, of course, have had a, an outer enclosure for livestock, and then inside that there would have been a large tent with an inner and outer chamber, and so it is here. The court of the tabernacle thus corresponds to the outer enclosure or stockyard. It was arranged on an east-west axis, with the entrance being on the east side. It was approximately 150 feet long or 45.7 meters. It was 75 feet wide or 22.9 meters and the fence itself was about seven and a half feet high or 2.3 meters. If you were to draw an intersecting line from north to south through the exact middle, that would divide the courtyard into two equal halves, and it would also indicate the entrance to the tabernacle proper, the actual tent. Now, I realize that all of this can be very difficult to visualize. Probably the best thing to do is to look up the tabernacle design on the internet or in any sort of Bible dictionary or Bible handbook. However, if you can, for now, just imagine two squares sitting side by side, one on the west side, one on the east side. The tabernacle proper, so the tent, occupies the western square. The altar of burnt offering, the bronze altar, occupies the eastern square. In fact, it's right in the dead center of the eastern square. So experientially, as people came in from the east, they would see right in front of them the bronze altar, and then through the smoke rising off the bronze altar, they would see beyond that the entrance to the holy place, the tent. Now, as I said, this entire enclosure is marked off by an outer curtain. The curtain sections were hung up on 60 pillars that were erected at intervals of five cubits or seven and a half feet. The eastern side obviously was a little bit different because that was where the entrance was. There, at each of the extremities, there were three pillars and then four in the middle to hold up the screen. Again, mention is made at the end of the section that all the utensils and pegs used in the outer court were to be made of bronze. So gold for the holy place and the most holy place and then bronze for the outer court. That's the symbolism the closer you get to God, the purer everything needs to be. That's the idea. And of course, that's not just an Old Testament idea. We see the same thing in the New Testament. The Apostle James in James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Close quote. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2.21 says, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So Old Testament and New, if you want to be close to God, if you want to be used by God, if you want to be a part, if you want to be at the center of what he's doing, you need to purify yourself because God is holy And he is of purer eyes than to look upon evil. We move back into the text at verse 20. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the lamp, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it, from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Back in chapter 25, an initial allotment of oil was mentioned along with a variety of other things needed to get the tabernacle up and running. So this then is a commandment related to the perpetual ongoing supply of of oil needed for the regular functioning of the cult, and I use that term in its technical sense. Now, there's some debate as to the nature of this lamp here that is to be maintained. Some see it as referring to the menorah, the golden lampstand, but that doesn't seem quite right given that this lamp is specifically said to be outside the veil that is before the testimony. Therefore, the majority view is that it refers to a smaller, simpler lamp that was kept in the outer court, just in front of the tent proper, that would be used to light the menorah each evening. This light was to be kept burning perpetually and was to be tended by Aaron and his sons, that is to say, by Aaron and his descendants, the priests, as opposed to the Levites generally. The oil was to be of the highest quality, the sort of oil that was normally used for cooking. Beaten and strained olives, as opposed to ground olives, produced a cleaner burning oil that produced a brighter light with less smoke. It was quite precious. And once again, we are reminded that worship is expensive. It demands our very best. It demands things that we would, in truth, rather be inclined to spend on other things but that in itself constitutes a test of faith it requires a firm conviction that the lord is good and worthy to be praised and that he can be trusted to give us what we need to live and to serve him as we should thanks be to god and thank you for listening to another episode of into the word If you've appreciated the the end-of-the-word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped, I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA, so tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.